Hello and welcome to the Metrospective Podcast. I'm Ted Berg, joined as always by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, I was on my way to the secret lair where I record this podcast this morning. And the darnest thing happened. I got hit in the head with something. And when I looked to the ground to see what it was, it was the sky. <laughs> the sky is falling. It is It is a Tuesday morning It is after five games of the season. You know, the Mets really want the return of seven-inning doubleheaders, but they want the return of seven innings for just single-headers as well. Uh, they've been leading after seven innings in each game this season. Uh, and the last two, they have not been able to hold on to that lead in the eighth inning, giving up three runs on Sundays in Sunday's eighth inning to lose four to two, five runs in Monday's eighth inning to lose five to four. Uh, two very different ways of approaching the eighth inning that, mm-hmm. that they've lost, but uh, several different pieces of that bullpen have not succeeded uh, in the last 48 hours. And so... You know, we had just praised Showalter, at least his reputation for bullpen management and it's two games, right? Like it's it's two games that didn't go their way. It's it's April 12th. It's way too early to say um, he's making mistakes or he made or even that he made a mistake. Um, you know, as we know, there's always like little details behind the scenes that we're, we're not privy to about availability. Um on in I think it was what Sunday's game, uh, it was Chasen Shreve and Trevor Williams who aren't your your one and two guys in a tight game for sure. But he made I thought the good point that he didn't want uh, so many of the top tier guys pitching uh, three out of four days. I think that's reasonable. Am I wrong? Yeah, I, I mean I think it's a reasonable position for him to have. I do think if that was the position that he was going to have, that he wanted to have every reliever pitch in that first series uh, and that he didn't want to throw certain guys three you know didn't want to throw anyone three out of four he could have managed some innings differently before Sunday you know you look at Saturday's game they're up four nothing when Chris Bassett comes out of the game and they had the seventh inning was pitched by Drew Smith that was his second straight day uh, pitching uh, then in the eighth inning they go to Joely Rodriguez which makes sense that was his first appearance in, in the season and then in the ninth inning with a 5 nothing lead and Rodriguez got the first out of the ninth, they went to Adam Adovino. And, you know, if you really wanted to get Chase and Shreve or Trevor Williams in the game, the seventh or ninth innings that day mm-hmm. also would have made sense. In which case, okay, maybe mm-hmm. you have Smith or Adovino for Sunday's game. Guys who, I mean, look, we're making assumptions based on uh, assumptions about the bullpen hierarchy that, you know, we don't have. The, it's not set yet. And actually, if you talk to, uh, I've talked to a couple of relievers who have said, you know, their roles have not been like explicitly defined yet at this point in the season, and and they're not. It's not always that they are at this point in the year. They're kind of defined as the season right. goes on, and and who pitches well and who doesn't. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's very possible that you know Chase and Shreve is more of a high leverage reliever in Buck Showalter's mind than Drew Smith, for instance. Uh, but you know, you could have had those guys, Smith or Ottavino. Uh, for Sunday, if you hadn't pitched them Saturday, and Saturday was lower leverage spots than Sunday ended up being. At the same time, you know, if you pitch Shreve and Williams Saturday and they don't pitch well, and you lose that game, uh, everyone's saying like, why? Why did you? Why did you waste? Why did you use those guys right. when you had the other guys that you could have pitched uh, on Saturday? So it's, you know. Showalter had said going into the season at the start of the season, and then coming out of the All Star break are two big challenges for a manager to get everyone involved so that there are not these long gaps between action for 
both position players and relievers in particular. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. just, you know, because the bullpen is even larger than it's ever been before for the Mets, and it's a nine-man bullpen. Ten, if you include, you know, David Peterson coming aboard with, with Edwin Diaz on the bereavement list. Uh, that, you know, to get all of those guys action, you're going to have to to be creative and pitch them in maybe spots that you wouldn't have uh, if this were July. And then Monday's game, I, I think it's it's harder to criticize Showalter for it just because, uh, for one thing, he it, it started with, with Taiwan Walker leaving after two innings, uh, which is which is a concern. Um, they, they got a great performance from David Peterson in, in long relief. Um, and then and then Trevor May had to had to leave with an injury of his own. And so uh, Showalter it sort of forced Showalter's hand. And then it was it was ultimately Seth Lugo who lost the game. That's that's one of the guys you, you sort of trust. And it's hard to say, oh, you can't go to Lugo there, especially, like you said, with Diaz on the brief. Yeah, I mean, the irony is that if you look at Sunday, and you, if your criticism is the wrong pitchers were pitching in the big spot, those those pitchers still pitched reasonably well, you know, like. Shreve gave up a, a up the middle single to Yadiel Hernandez to begin the eighth. Trevor Williams gave up a bunch of ground balls, <laughs> a couple that got through, uh, and a couple that were not fielded properly. Uh, and you know, you, you can't get too hard on those guys for for that performance. On on Monday, it was like the right people were in the game for the most part, uh, and they did not pitch well. Uh, you know, I think the the interesting decision there was was coming. With Trevor May for more than one inning, for you know he pitched a scoreless seventh. He came back for the start of the eighth. That's something he did not do at all in 2021. He never was asked to get more than three outs. He never pitched in multiple innings. Uh, and the the reason he didn't do that last year was because the Mets didn't like his history of doing that in in 2019 and 2020 with with the Twins. I looked up his numbers uh, doing that with, with Minnesota. He's actually quite good in 2018 when he came back for a second inning. But in 2019, uh, he gave up a 9.54 OPS. When he came back for a second inning in 2020, it was 1500 the OPS. So uh, for the three years before, you know, 2018 through 2020, Trevor May in his initial inning of work 570 OPS, his second inning of work 861. So there there was a difference there. You know, at the same time, you don't want to limit yourself entirely. Like there should come a time where Trevor May works more than one inning. Uh, and like he, he said after the game, he told me. You know, he wasn't surprised by it that, you know, there, there was going to be a first time where this happened and tonight was the first time. Um, I don't know that the his he, he said he kind of experienced like a dead arm feeling in that second inning uh, that might have to do with doing this unfamiliar thing in on a relatively mm-hmm. cold night. Uh, you can probably quibble and say like, hey, if if you were going to go with your right handed reliever who started the seventh for five or six batters like the lineup set up for Philadelphia why not make that first reliever Lugo, uh, who's more used to doing that, and then you go Lugo, Rodriguez, May, instead of May, Rodriguez, Lugo. Given the way Lugo pitched, that probably also doesn't work out. Um, right. I think the bigger concern out of Monday is probably the performance of Rodriguez, uh, where he did kind of what his career track record is, which is he got the two lefties out, the two good lefties, Kyle Schwarber and Bryce Harper, out. Uh, and he gave up the bloop single to Johan Camargo, a switch hitter, to start his his night, uh, and then the the blast to JT Realmuto, the, the two run homer. Uh, you know, Joely Rodriguez has not been particularly good against right handers in his career, especially in key spots against right handers. Uh, when you have him on your roster, you generally want to limit those chances. But uh, when you have a left hander in your bullpen and the Phillies are bringing up Schwarber, Realmuto, Harper, that's the spot for your best left hander. Uh, and the Mets' best left-hander in the bullpen 
the guy the guy for that spot is Joely Rodriguez, uh, and he didn't get the job done on Monday. And and you know you worry about his track record in those spots. This isn't uh, a guy who who's like Aaron Loop and can go through that uh, the way Loop did so many times last year, or other guys that were available in free agency that the Mets decided not to pursue aggressively. Can I point out a positive from these two losses that I think might be, to me, like such a big positive to outweigh the bullpen hiccups? No. I think you can, I think you can guess. I, like, Carlos Carrasco was awesome. Like, he just looked great. And, you know, I think that you have to, you know, you sort of cross your fingers and you, you hold your breath because you, you know about his injury history and you remember last season. Um, certainly. And, and you don't know how many starts you can count on Carrasco for but if he's pitching like that for as long as he's healthy like that Mets rotation just looks so much deeper especially now in light of whatever might be going on yeah I mean you look at you've got six starters who have pitched if you include Peterson coming in 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 relief on Monday and all of them have pitched very well now the only one who's given up multiple runs is Max Scherzer uh, and you feel relatively confident that Scherzer's going to be just fine in the long run so you know Bassett pitched so well on Saturday night uh, and just kind of really uh, entertainingly and creatively. Uh, it's, it's, it's very different to watch him perform as a starter versus some of the other guys in that rotation. And then Carrasco. Yeah, Bassett's like, I love it. I love any pitcher who can throw 92 and make it look like he's blowing guys away. Yeah, I mean, he, he wins with 93 in the zone with a four-seam fastball that he just that guys swing under. Uh, he can hit. He's one of those guys that can hit like every digit on the, the radar gun from like 70 to 93, uh, which is, mm-hmm. is fun. Uh, you know, Carrasco looked very much like his Cleveland self uh, th- uh, on Sunday, you know. Who, which was a really good pitch. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because Bassett and, and Carrasco kind of had similar track records when the Mets acquired them as both like really good pitchers over the last couple of years. Guys, you don't hear a ton about. Uh, mm-hmm. because they're in the they're in the other league. You know, Carrasco was on a was in a rotation with some bigger names, both both Kluber and then Shane Bieber, uh, and and Bassett was in Oakland, where you don't hear about anyone ever, uh, even when they make the playoffs. So, uh, you know, both and guys, also with some other with some other really good pitchers. You know, true. Uh, and, and so Carrasco looked like he had the entire repertoire in a way that it, it never seemed that way last year. You know, he was playing his slider off of his curveball with his changeup. He only threw less than a third of his less than a third of his pitches on Sunday were fastballs. And he was able to kind of mix in all of the off-speed stuff really well. We didn't see that last year. And even on Monday, you know, I know Taiwan Walker only goes two innings. They were two really good innings. Right. Uh, the, the splitter, uh, I think he threw it nine times. He got seven swings, all of them swings and misses. Uh, and, you know, he, he was able to, to retire his nemesis, Kyle Schwarber, with a, a leadoff strikeout. You know, we'll see what the MRI on Tuesday brings with his shoulder irritation. He tweeted Tuesday morning something about positive vibes. Uh, I don't know if that was before or after the MRI. Uh, so we'll see. You always Probably want before. you always want positive vibes. Like even if it was a bad MRI, you would still hope for the good vibes, right? Like you know, positive vibes. That is covered. Yeah, it, it would not be like you hear bad news. You go, oh, negative vibes now. So right. uh, we'll see the the outcome of that. And then you know, Peterson, who uh, didn't have the smoothest spring training, didn't didn't look great throughout spring training, uh, looked really good uh, on Monday night, coming in behind Walker for four innings. I think four, four scoreless innings, gave up three hits. Uh, he, too, kind of had command of a bunch of different weapons with his slider uh, and his changeup to go along with a fastball that, that he was spotting in the zone. So, 
you know, if, if Walker misses time, Peterson is the next man up again. So you've got McGill and Peterson both in the rotation in that instance. But that's the Mets feel decent about those seven guys. If it gets any further into their depth, that that, that might be more of a concern. But uh, the way their starters have pitched, I, I think the ERA is like 1-4-8 through five games uh, and one turn through the rotation without your ace, Jacob deGrom. Uh, you've got to be pretty happy with that. And I think you've got to be pretty happy with, with the offensive side of things too, right? Especially if you consider that really the only guys not hitting so far are, are Pete Alonso and, and Starling Marte. Uh, and James McCann, but you know he hasn't seen as many opportunities. Plus, I, I don't think you're expecting as much out of McCann. Um, and I think you feel good that that about Alonzo and Marte coming around. Obviously, it's it's four or five games, um, you know. So, but it, like it, it just feels um, I, I, like everybody in the lineup is such so professional. You know, like just, just there's they're not giving away at bats. They're they're working deep counts. Uh, they they haven't scored a ton of runs, but um, it certainly feels like they're going to score a ton of runs. The the lineup feels complete uh, as it's structured right now, right? That it like one through nine, they're going to be difficult at bats for a pitcher to work through, and and a big part of that is the guys who have been hitting seventh and eighth mainly, Mark Canna and Jeff McNeil, uh, each have a ton of hits. Canna's uh, been awesome. Let's see. Canna's eight for fourteen. McNeil seven for sixteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've they've been getting on base. Uh, you know, I, I think Canna. This is kind of what you what you wanted from him. This is what his reputation is as a guy like a professional hitter. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's it's. A, I don't know exactly how to define professional hitter, but you know it when you see it. And Mark Canna looks like a professional hitter, uh, where every at bat is a difficult one for the pitcher. Uh, he works the count. Uh, he doesn't get himself out most of the time. Uh, he's he does have uh, a tendency to to uh, dunk one into right field. I think he's done that at least twice through the first five games. And then I think the guy that you're you're probably most excited about what he's done so far is McNeil because of the way last year snowballed mm-hmm. on him from the start. Like, you know, last year he had awful results in spring training, even when it seemed like he was hitting the ball hard. And I think your concern is even when a guy is hitting the ball hard uh, and, and, you know, hitting into outs and tough luck, that that plays with them mentally right. and they think something's wrong even when it's not. That seemed to be the case with McNeil a little bit last year. He started tinkering with his swing, got out of rhythm, and just had a, a miserable offensive season for him. Uh, and in spring training, he said he felt a lot better, more comfortable with where his swing was. He felt like himself. Uh, and if you were going to pick one guy in this roster where you said, okay, who's the guy who could really use positive results early in the season? Regardless of the process, let's see good results and the average up there. You'd probably pick McNeil first, and, and he's there right now. So... I think that's a really important development for them because if you've got 2018-2019 Jeff McNeil in this lineup along with some of the other pieces, man, that that's a long lineup for a pitcher to work. Positive through. vibes only, and uh, and you know almost by the same token as McNeil, and it well, it's not as surprising because he was pretty good from from the middle of the season on last year. But Lindor's off to a pretty nice start here too, hitting the home run and and. Uh, you know, taking taking lots of walks. Like it's he's four for sixteen. It's five games. It's 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 hard to go nuts about it. But uh, he's four for sixteen with with uh, four twenty nine on base percentage and a home run. Like that feels good. It feels good to see that guy and think like, oh right, that is an that is an all star player. Uh, that is the face of the franchise right now. And and you know, it would be sweet if he could play like it all year long. Yeah, he would have been the second guy you'd pick for the for the positive results early, right? Uh, and and he's looked he's looked good at the plate. He's looked good at the plate all spring. You know, you go back to to the the power that he showed uh, over a stretch in spring training, 
uh, and just looks comfortable up there. Uh, you know, there is something really refreshing for a player when they were able to hit that reset button and the statistics on the scoreboard look different than they did the year before. You know, as, as well as, as Lindor played and hit over the last four months of the season, his numbers were wrecked by the way the first two months went. And they were, you know, they were never going to look like his numbers. Uh, and so it's nice that you, you start fresh uh, with a new regular season with, with zeros across the board. Uh, and get to kind of carry over what you did for four months last year where you looked more like yourself, uh, it feels a lot better just mentally to, to see better numbers on the scoreboard when you come up to bat each day. Yeah, and, you know, I don't I don't know how much stock to put into this type of talk, but it was something that came up on the radio broadcast, I think, on Sunday I was listening. Um, you know, with Lindor, maybe it is good to have so many more veterans in, in, in the mix now after bringing on Escobar and Canna and... And with and Marte and with with Cano back in the lineup somewhat regularly, like um, he was so yeah. And again, like I, I believe Francisco Lindor is up to any challenge of pressure because I don't think he'd be in the major leagues if he wasn't. Um, but he was just it. There was just so much I think put on him last year coming in as like the new here is the new thing of the Steve Cohen era. Like now it's changing and now. Uh, we have our new face of the franchise and, and he's going to be an all-star every year for the next 10 years and uh, getting off to that slow start. Like it, it certainly felt like uh, there was a lot of attention on Lindor. And I, and I would assume that, you know, not just the comfort of coming back for the second year, but the, um, the additional, you know, both protection in the lineup and sort of just like protection from the pressure that comes with so many other faces um, has to be a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, he, he talked all spring training 2021 about just kind of being a part of the chain. He didn't want to be the, you know, he wasn't coming in here to be this rah-rah leader. He just wanted to be one of the guys, part of the group that passes the baton in the lineup. And, you know, I, I was talking to to J.D. Davis and Brandon Nimmo about the way the lineup has worked so far this season. And they both brought up that, you know, like last year, guys maybe tried to do a little too much, especially as the season wore on because of the injuries that, they were experiencing in the lineup and the way guys were struggling that, you know, right now you feel a little bit better about taking a walk and, and passing it on to the next guy because the lineup is, is whole and, and strong one through nine. Whereas last year, you know, there were times when Cameron Mabin was your third hitter. Billy McKinney was your fifth hitter. Th- those kinds of things. You know, you feel a little bit differently when you're one of the guys who's supposed to be, be carrying the offense about, you know, taking your walks or taking what the pitcher is giving you in those situations, you want to be the guy who comes through. So I, I think they're in a good spot mentally to start the season. Uh, you know, the, it was nice. The first two games, they got a bunch of hits with runners in scoring position. That's been less consistent over the last three. That's the way it works with runners in scoring position. Um, you know, it's a team. I feel like teams always start or, or teams often start like four for seven in a game with runners in scoring position. Then you look at the end of the game and they're like four for 15. Right. Because, you know, you end a lot of innings by getting, making an out with a runner in scoring position because that's how innings end. Uh, but, you know, after the first two, I think it was nine of nine for 24 the first two and then two for 18 the next two, that happens. Uh, there, are, there have been some spots uh, the last two days where, in retrospect, you're, you, you lament not coming through earlier to build an even bigger lead than they had in those eighth innings. But I do think the offense has a lot of potential. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how it hits for power. Uh, as this, mm-hmm. as the weather gets warmer, uh, it's been cold the first five days. I think it's, I think it is supposed to be warmer in Philadelphia tonight. Uh, it's supposed to stay warmer throughout the night and into to Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we'll see if the ball flies a little bit differently 
uh, you know, like Alonzo's Grand Slam the other day was crushed and got out by like three rows uh, in left field because of the wind. So we'll, we'll see how the ball flies. And, and I think that's a bigger question about this, this lineup is how much power can it hit for? You've got an idea of what it can do to grind down a pitching staff, but there are going to be times when you're facing a very good pitcher, uh, the, the Max Scherzers of the world, really, that you've got to get to by hitting solo home runs. Well, I mean, uh, and, they're going to have a chance to show it in Philadelphia because they got Zach Wheeler and then Aaron Nola. Yeah, so we'll see. You know, the, the Nationals were not the greatest guide uh, in terms of how good a team is because they, they themselves are not the best test. Uh, Philadelphia gives a little bit more of that. You know, wearing down Ranger Suarez through two-plus innings on Monday is more impressive than doing that to uh, Josiah Gray the way they did on Friday. So... Uh, that was a good sign for them on Monday. Let's see them do that to, to Wheeler. Let's see them do it to Nola uh, and, and do it to some of the better pitchers in the division and in the league before we, we feel really, really good about the offense. We didn't talk about the the, the fisticuffs. We're no, no real fisticuffs, but the – I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for here? The brouhaha? The skirmish? The skirmish. Uh, the kerfuffle. Are are the Mets and Nationals going to have a thing all year? Because like I think we we both sort of dismissed it after the opening day game, but then Lindor gets hit in the face, and and you know it's clear that none of the Nationals pitchers were doing it intentionally. Um, but at the same time, like I think that that was the probably the point Joe Walter was making was like, if you can't not hit a guy in the face, you shouldn't be pitching in the major leagues. Yeah, I mean that is, that is the point. <laughs> you know, just because. I, I, I don't think he said it this explicitly, but like just because you have a 15-man pitching staff doesn't mean you've got 15 major leaguers who should be there. Right. Uh, and that was, you know, a bunch of those guys. I, I, it was strange that Steve she, Steve Ciszek is one of the guys in the bullpen who is a major league pitcher, and he's the guy who hit Lindor. The other ones uh, were guys that you know do not have as much major league experience, and and you worry about their command up and in. You know, I think with with when Lindor was hit, you know, it was interesting to me that Showalter was the first one out of the dugout. I thought that was uh, awesome. He was kind of leading that I thought charge. that was so awesome. Uh, and, it, and, I, and, like, I, and I, I saw think, how much praise he got for that, and, like, and part of me wants to be like, well, that's ridiculous. But, like, watching it at the time, it was like, oh, hell yeah. And as I wrote, there is that element to it that, like, you know, that is something that galvanizes a roster that Francisco Lindor said. You know, when I got up, my whole team was out there. The whole coaching staff was out there. Uh, that felt good. You know, that you, you want people to care about you when you get hit in the face and you want them to be angry that that happened. Uh, I also think just like strategically, you know, that happened on Friday. There were 17 more games between the Mets and Nationals this year. There are going to be a lot of Nationals pitchers and middle relievers, in, you know, the same kinds of guys throughout the season. Uh, and now uh, the inside part of the plate is going to be taken away from them just a little bit because if, if they come up and in again, you know, if something like this happens again, the next series... The ejections are going to be quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even on Friday, like, that C-Sheck got ejected uh, was, was I think, it, it surprised me because clearly the pitch was not intentional. Uh, and I, I think because Showalter had come out and because they started that little on-field whatever you want to call it, uh, that's what helped get C-Sheck ejected. That's what helped push the Nationals further into their bullpen on Friday. It, it wore out guys who could then who could not then pitch on Saturday when the Mets exploited the the lack of bullpen arms. So I I think it's kind of, you know, the Mets play this team a lot. The team is not very good in Washington. And here's a way to keep your guys focused on beating them and wanting to beat them, you know, not having a letdown against them at any point in the season. And to have in the umpires' minds each time you play them that, hey, this team has had some free shots at Mm -hmm. us. 
uh, let, let's not let them get away with that again uh, in the future. Yeah, uh, the, I didn't even think about the, the strategic aspect of it, but I, I do hope that they don't uh, take it out on Juan Soto because he, you want to, again, you want to keep the positive vibes around Juan Soto because you don't know what it's gonna, his story's going to be in a few years. Um, let's take some questions. Um, we got a, we got a few. These, these came to the AskTedBerg at Gmail account, which, uh, where we welcome your, your questions. We'll have a live show later in the week where you can join us on stage, which I know is very exciting. Um, but uh, you can also get to us in the traditional fa- fashion on either on Twitter. I'm at OGTedBerg or Tim is at, at Tim Britton. Uh, or you can email asktedberg at gmail.com. And Mac has a question. He wants to know. Um, he says, I've noticed that no one is picking Jacob deGrom as their NL Cy Young winner. That makes sense considering his injury, but the fact that no one is even mentioning him is crazy to me. MLB just tweeted a graphic of potential winners, and there was Scherzer rep- representing the Mets, but no deGrom. If, and I know this is a big if, if deGrom comes back healthy on June 1st, which isn't going to happen, uh, and remains healthy the rest of the season, do you believe he could take home his third Cy Young? That was me editorializing. Mac didn't say it's not going to happen, but I think the timeline, uh, June 1st, is is very ambitious. So, so basically, the question is like, what would Jacob Degrom have to do over four months to win this, the six month award for right. Cy Young? Right. Uh, I mean, something similar to last year. Like you looked last year, he pitched for what three months, had a one oh eight ERA, uh, and, and he was still uh, like, was up, yeah, go on. Up among the leaders in the National League in wins above replacement yeah. among starters uh, over that the course of that season. Uh, and I believe did get one fifth place Cy Young vote. I think I think he did get one uh, down ballot vote. And I would assume, um, just for the so record, like if he had flipped it, if those starts came at the end of the season instead of the beginning of the season, I bet he would have gotten a few more Cy Young votes. Yeah, and there's there's definitely you know a narrative that gets attached to that, especially if you pitch really well uh, for a team that that is making a charge. Mm-hmm. You think of Rick Sutcliffe with the the Cubs in '84, or CC Sabathia with the Brewers in 2008, much to Mets fans' chagrin. Uh, like that carries weight as well. I think Sabathia was with Milwaukee for essentially four months. I think he was traded in early June that year. Uh, he didn't win the Cy Young, but he was—I forget where he finished. It was—it was pretty high up. Um, so uh, you know, if if Jacob Degrom, like we talked about last week, if he hits kind of the Pakoda ridiculous projections, where like even the worst version of him has a sub two ERA or something, you know, if he, if he has kind of a crazy ERA and throws, let's see, uh, that would be. Four months, two thirds of his usual workload. So throws 120 innings rather than uh, 180 to 200. Uh, you know, I think he can be a contender for it. Probably doesn't win the award, but you never know because you know the league leader in innings this year is going to be lower than than we're used to, just like last year. Uh, so if if it's him going up against a guy who's got you know Blake Snell's 160 some odd innings when he won the the Cy Young in in was that 18 or 19 when Snell won? Um, you know, uh, if, if that's the, the other main contender and the, the gap is 40 innings or so, uh, then, you know, and the, the ERA is, is half a run to three quarters of a run to a run different, then then he's, he's got a legitimate shot, and especially if, you know, the Mets are a 500 team, Jacob deGrom comes back on June 1st and they, they go 96 and 60. But he's not, coming back, like on, he's not coming back on June 1st because he's out until, right? Because we already know he's out until sometime, like he's, He's shut down until May, right? So, I don't. Do you really think June first is a possibility? Tell me, it is. I haven't ruled a June first out because the Mets haven't placed him on the sixty-day injured list yet. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I mean, like that's something that could happen, you know, depending on, on kind of the roster moves they make today, that might happen. Um, if, you know, say Taiwan Walker and or Trevor May need time on the IL, right. uh, and they need to bring someone else onto the 40-man, you know, DeGrom to the 60-day is kind of like the next logical thing for them to do, uh, which would knock him out uh, until basically to the start of June for, for good. The fact that they, they didn't do that yet and that they decided to designate a couple guys for assignment like Jordan Yamamoto and, and Travis Blankenhorn tells me that there there's some hope that he can be back around that time, if not before. But uh, I, I'm not betting on it, but I haven't officially ruled it. Yeah, I mean, if he if he really comes back June 1st and he pitches like like recent Jacob Degrom for the rest of the season, then like then yeah, Mac is right. Like he is he's absolute. I think he's absolutely a side young contender. Last year he had a 1.24 FIP and a 0.554 WHIP. Like he people just he just simply does not allow base runners. Like as we we talked about it, like he is off the charts in terms of dominance, and so like. I think it would be an interesting debate if you're looking at like 19 starts from DeGrom or 18 starts from DeGrom and, and whether that's worth a Cy Young. But um, the way he makes them, like his his starts, if it was if it was 18 great um, Blake Snell starts, you know, like like he's a very good pitcher, uh, he hasn't been quite as dominant. I'm trying to think of I don't want to I don't want to say Scherzer because I don't want to knock Scherzer. It's just that Degrom is on well, like, such a different level, you know. It's like this is the the Pedro Martinez thing, where it's like this guy's operating in a different universe than than everybody else, and so uh, eighteen of his starts are just maybe just as valuable, if not more, than thirty really good starts from really good pitchers. And, and we've seen kind of voters value innings differently, uh, you know. For instance, last year Corbin Burns beating out Zach mm-hmm. Wheeler. Wheeler had more innings. But Burns had, you know, was more dominant within his individual innings. We've seen that get rewarded at a different level than it used to be. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm looking at the 08 voting. Sabathia threw 130 innings for the Brewers and finished fifth. But that was because the top three guys in the voting that year all had at least 225 innings, including Johan Santana, who had 234. He had thrown 100 more innings than Sabathia in the National League that season. Sabathia did get one first place vote, though, by the way. Uh, so, you know, I, I think. It's a little, you know, if, if DeGrom comes out and is just utterly dominant for his 120 innings, uh, I think, you know, you can make a, a pretty good case. Like, what, what I try to do to even out those innings is like, okay, what does a league average reliever right. do behind him? You know, if, if, if you have a league average reliever to cover the, the innings gap between him and another guy, then what does his ERA look mm-hmm. like? How, how, what is the team ERA yeah, for add, those innings? Add 60, uh, 60 innings at, at a four ERA, and what does it look like, right? Right. Uh, and uh, that often uh, provide, benefits the guy with fewer innings more than you'd expect, actually. Uh, I usually think it, it would even out more so than it does. So uh, I think there is, there is a movement among voters to recognize that kind of dominance, even over briefer periods of time, even as simultaneously fewer and fewer relievers get, get voted for in the Saya, which is a funny uh, dichotomy. We've got one more question coming, but I've got a question. I've got a question for you. I was going to ask you about books, but I, got, I had a baseball question for you uh, that's been on my mind. Do third base coaches practice? <laughs> I'm serious. Like, do, like, uh, because that I'm, seems like something you, should, you can and should be practicing. Do you mean practicing in like get when they just dis- like, like getting their reads? On I'm things? saying like like if if and I don't know that they do drills like this, but if you were doing like situational defense and base running, um, the third base coach should should be out there 
trying to fit like trying to get a sense especially like in a, in a situation like this a new third base coach bunch of new players like um you, it, there's a rhythm to it and i i mentioned the rhythm of it because joey cora is a is a percussion player himself um and and it feels like you you're gonna need just some practice to get the hang of like how fast these guys cut the bases how how is their you know start speed how 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 long do they maintain their sprint speed things like that uh, not that I have noticed uh, in, in terms of like on field during spring training doing that kind of uh, you know like well this is a market this is a market in inefficiency drills. Tim get the, the, like I want uh, I sabermetric do... third base coaches I want to I want Statcast on on how these guys are doing it they do uh, I mean they do put in a ton of like video work prep time. Uh, to see, you know, to to explore the same kinds of things you're talking about, to see how guys hit bases differently, uh, to know the speed of, of runners versus uh, the strength of a of a defender's arm or how he approaches different things. Uh, you know, I think there are teams that do that better than other teams. You go back to the 2015 Royals, for instance, and mm-hmm. I know it's a, a sore spot, yeah. but uh, you know, Lorenzo Cain scoring from first on that single because they knew that Jose Bautista just threw the ball into second. Uh, a lot of times on hits down the line in a certain fashion, you know, uh, the way y- there are market inefficiencies, like you said, like I remember talking to uh, the first base coach for those Royals teams, Rusty Koontz, mm-hmm. uh, and he would talk about like all of the video work that he put in before a series. And I remember I, I, the team I was covering at the time, I was like, I don't think their first base coach does all that. <laughs> I don't think he's putting in the same kind of time that this guy is. Uh, and there are ways to, to take, to have an advantage in your what your coaches do uh it'd be really fun actually to see those kinds of drills in spring training where you know instead of just like the coach is hitting the ball the right field the right fielder is throwing home and you're seeing how it works you've got a guy on second who's doing that um that would be a fun drill to watch and i would i would like watching that drill uh and hopefully uh buck showalter is listening to this podcast and decides to put it in next. call me up call me up i could i could uh i got ideas i got ideas for for practice uh for baseball practice uh, are you reading any good books? You know, right now I'm not really reading the, the last like two uh, weeks. Yeah, someone's got work uh, to is, do. Yeah, it, you know, I've, I've had books with me on the train to read, uh, but I, I have decided to nap most of the time on the train rather rather than reading. That has been this is always the the difficult time of year uh, because yeah, work hits you uh, harder at the start of the the end of spring training into the start of the regular season. Uh, I will I will achieve an equilibrium eventually, uh, but it's it's not there right now. How about you? Uh, yeah, I threw a recommendation. It was it was slow to get going for me, but I'm reading uh, Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley. It was like sort of a, a 50s, 60s uh, African American detective fiction, noir fiction type guy. Uh, it it's it's good. It's 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 a it's sort of like the the Raymond Chandler thing plus like a, a social commentary aspect that uh, feels like kind of topical right now and and certainly ahead of its time i would say so um i don't know it's been it's been a fun read uh it's uh, it was a little uh, i happen to be writing something that in which takes involves a lot of one guy trying to figure things out from talking to people at bars and that's very much what's happening in this book and so that was frustrating for me because it was like all oh, these this is the boring parts of of what i'm working on um, but once you get over your, your personal things like that, I, I, it's actually a really good book. Uh, the, the next question comes, the last question, uh, the second question, comes from Philippe. 
who is coming to us from Sweden, where, of course, we are huge. As uh, as longtime listeners remember, this podcast is just tremendous in, in Scandinavia uh, due to Tim's strong roots there. Um, his question <laughs> is, why do players on the offensive team need to wear a helmet after the at-bat? Uh, the defensive infielders don't wear one. What is the difference? Uh, that is a fair question. No, I... I wonder if part of it was just convenience. Right. Because, uh, like, who's going to you know, take like, the helmet? It's a lot. Right. The first That's another thing the first base coach is going to have to work on. Like, he, he, the first base coach already wraps himself up in all the armor that guys take off when they reach the bases. Uh, but I do think there are instances, and, and we've seen it, where guys get hit by throws, whether they're diving back into first base or sliding into second base. Uh, you know, I, well, there, isn't there a highlight uh, a couple of years ago of one player, like, Running around the bases and getting hit like three different oh, times yeah. each time uh, he went was, into a it new was base. Stephen Piscotti, right? I, I want to say it was Stephen yes, Piscotti got yes. hit, uh, like just kept getting hit. I think he got hit like he stole second base and he got hit with the throw, and then like got hit with the outfielder's throw to third base, and then got hit with a with an infielder's throw to home or something like that. It was nuts. Uh, so there is some value in having the helmet there. Uh, I'm actually. I don't know. I'm trying to think when like helmets were first brought in. If guys did take them off when they were on the bases, um, you know, and and certainly uh, base coaches have started to wear them uh, ever since what happened uh, in the minor leagues to Mike Coolbaugh. So uh, you know, I think there, you're never going to have a situation where you go from like overly safe to less safe uh, yeah. <laughs> like this, and you remove helmets. I was actually thinking about it when I was at the ballpark uh, in D.C. Uh, you know, someone hit a foul ball, someone in batting practice hit a line drive deep down the line, uh, and I, it looked like it was going into the stands, into a group of people who weren't watching closely, and then it hits the netting. Uh, and I was like, oh, right, that used to not be there. Uh, and remember when everyone got really upset that the netting was there, and now everyone's right. fine with yeah. it? Um, that, like, you know, there was this big uh, Sturmandrang about, like, oh, now I can't actually see the game the same way because there's a, a very thin netting that protects me from getting hit in the face by a hundred mile an hour line drive uh that you know the, the game is going to move towards being safer even if some of that safety doesn't feel the most necessary like having helmets on the the base runners yeah i, w- I, I don't know if there's like an incident that that uh catalyzed that or not i, I would i don't know that history. i would say that the reason um and this is an obsolete comment i guess but i, I there's plenty of guys you can sub but for like 20 years of Major League Baseball, maybe 21, 22 years, uh, Gary Sheffield would sometimes come up with runners on third base. And if you were like, uh, if I were standing on third base and Gary Sheffield were at bat and I didn't, if even if I were the third baseman, I would want like full body protection. Um, and, the, and the third baseman is, is facing the batter waiting for the ball. Uh, if you're the base runner, like you are sort of just out there um if i were on on third base like and and you know stand on third base when at some point like 90 feet away like it's it's awful close um with your with the speed of a major league baseball game and gary sheffield if you don't recall him and i can think like javi baez is another guy who, who you know just these ferocious swingers who would line the ball down the third base line like sheffield played before exit velocity, but I, I can practically guarantee you he would have been the league leader many, many years um, and just always dead pull down the down the left field line. So uh, that would be terrifying. You know, like, I, I think you just want the helmet. 
Yeah, I mean, you remember when like Mark McGuire was, was hitting where the third base coach for the Cardinals would stand? It yeah, was like, yeah. It was like, you know, you've got the little coaching box there, and he would stand like 50 feet away at the edge of the dugout, like as far away as possible where he could still get in the play. If I mean, it's not like he's hitting singles. He's not in singles anyway. You know, you don't have a lot to do. It's just, you know, you just have to have to get there by the time he rounds third base on the home run to like give him a little smack on the ass as he comes by. <laughs> Give him the high five, yeah. you know. Uh, so yeah, that that is not. Uh, you you stand there on a field and you look in, and I, I've never had to do it. You know, we do it when we play. Like we used to play the media game when I was in Boston, and uh, it did not feel as dangerous when you're standing on third and like Tyler Kepner from the New York Times is up. Not to disparage Tyler, he's a he's a good baseball player, uh, as it would, but it's still like oh, the ball gets on you faster than I remember from little league, uh, you know. Uh, that it's the the field is is not as big as it can feel like uh, when you're just watching on TV or in the stadium. Yeah, even like if you're playing first base and and holding on a runner with a lefty pull hitter up, it's pretty it's pretty scary, you know. Like facing the you gotta you gotta face the pitcher in case he's gonna throw over, and then like real quick reset yourself to the guy who might line a ball at your head. Um, a fun anecdote about batting helmets from uh, Patrick Flood, a guy who used to block about the Mets a, a bit, and I used to do a podcast with. Uh, he asked, if you remember, Willie Harris, uh, I believe was a left-handed hitter. He was not a switch hitter. Um, and he wore, he wore, wore the dual flap helmet, uh, which is, mm-hmm. which is rare enough as it is, but especially not on a non-switch hitter, uh, why he would, you know, uh, like it was, Patrick went and asked him why he would wear the dual flap helmet. He said, uh, he spent, you know, obviously like, like most players, he, he came up through little league, high school, college or whatever, uh, wearing the dual flap helmet. He was so excited to wear the single flap helmet as a, I believe for the first time as a major leaguer. And then as first at bat, he, he fouled the ball off the ground and it came up and hit him in the, in the off ear. And he's like, that's it. Uh, I'm going back to the dual flap helmet. Yeah. There's, I wonder if anyone still uses that. Cause Victorino, Shane Victorino was the guy who I remember wearing the, the dual flap helmet. And I, I can't think of anyone else that I've seen. You know, it's not something you notice all the time. It's uh, a weird. But I'm going to be on the lookout for it now because, I, like, what, like, you know, like, and now every guy wears the C flap, right? Like now it feels like like just about everybody has that extra C flap, as they should. Like, if it doesn't affect your vision, I don't know why you wouldn't want that protection. Like Lindor said, like he wanted, he was about to take it off, and he was very lucky it was there uh, when he got hit by C shack. It's curious to me that no one like. Is the extra breathability on the on the offside of your face so valuable that you need to bother with the the flapless helmet? Yeah, I mean, we'll we're, we'll get to the point where it has like total uh, buy-in from players. Uh, it, it's getting you know, I think really in 2018 is when I remember it's starting. Where like, oh, like a lot of guys are wearing that instead of like the one or two guys per team who had been hit in the face who wore it. Uh, it's kind of you know, it's like going back and watching old hockey games where like. Craig McTavish didn't have a helmet on deep into the into the nineties because ruled. I mean, he was like the one player. Psychotic and it ruled. I, like I, and, and like now I would think differently about that. But in nineteen ninety four or whatever, like remember there was a there was a, a Sega Genesis game where he was like the only player who didn't have a helmet, and like it was like it was so funny to me that they had to like make that special for Craig McTavish. It's like the for some reason NHL Network was on in the Mets clubhouse on Monday, mm-hmm. uh, and they're they're showing you know some cross-checking incident 
I think it was Evgeny Malkin. You can tell how, how much I was paying attention. Uh, and one of the players just like, you know, throws the stick into a guy's mouth. The guy loses at least one tooth, if not more. Uh, and one of the Mets, Mets guys just like, man, why don't they wear like face guards? <laughs> it seems like that'd be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was just a very human reaction to like this sport's ridiculous. I want to say like the first hockey goalies who wore masks were ridiculed for them. Oh yeah, like uh, and you know it's it's the same thing of, of watching like catchers who didn't have helmets uh, in baseball for the longest yeah. time. Uh, protective equipment has come a long way uh, in the last fifty years in all sports. Right, uh, except not. Uh, we're still waiting on the pitcher helmet. Yes, still waiting on on the like the the best way to to go about doing that, uh, where you don't look like uh, Alex Torres when he wore the really big pad. Yeah, around um, his which looks and like it's it's a tough thing. Like it does look silly. David Wright did look silly in the Greek Gazoo helmet. Like we have to admit that. But at the same time, like we can't shame these people for for making smart decisions about about their brain health. Yeah, it's like you know. We talk about being on third base when a, a, a good hitter is up. You know, being on the mound is is uh, a third closer. You're so close, yeah. And these guys hit the ball so hard. Like I, I don't know how you're not. Like it's it's so it's so crazy to me. It's crazy to me that Lindor can get back in the batter's box the next day or two days later. It's crazy to me that Chris Bassett can get back on a mound. Like I know it's what they've been doing their whole lives. I know they've probably had close calls before, but like just. Uh, I don't know. It's just I think that that is another thing that distinguishes Major League Baseball players from from the rest of us. Like I would just I would just like go fetal in fear. Yeah, I mean I did that most little league at bats yeah. anyway. It's, a, so. it's an effective it's uh. an effective strategy in little league because they usually call balls so you can just walk. <laughs> um, yeah. My my one hundred eight hundred one hundred slash line. Right. Yeah. Um, hey, that's a that's a that's a valuable player, right? That's like what Brandon Nimmo is is aspiring to. Um, not the not the one hundred part, uh, but you know you walk every time. That's good. Uh, keep that in mind until we talk live again later this week. Yeah, so we'll see how the, the Mets handle uh, Wheeler and Nola over the next two nights, and then we will talk uh, before their home opener against the Arizona Diamondbacks on Friday. Uh, and until then, peace out. Adios. Adios.